so today, I'm going to teach you a little bit about Islam and Muslims and all of that. But my main point today is not about giving you a bunch of information to download. Instead, it's going to be about an attitude or a posture that I hope that you might be able to adopt as you go home to the various places that you live in and work in and go to school in. And so the main point today is about building relationships with our Muslim neighbors. It's not about crafting a clever outreach strategy. It's not about putting up walls. It's not about learning all the information. Instead, it's about getting to know your Muslim neighbors as individuals and as human beings. As uh, my introduction said, I teach Islamic studies. That's part of what I do. Uh, and I have you know, degrees and all that that back that up. But I've found that education and teaching people stuff doesn't really help as much as just that relational engagement that happens. In fact, I think the number one goal of Christians in this age is to build peacemaking or grow peacemaking in the fertile soil of relationships. Not only change the way we think, but change the way we feel about Islam and Muslims. And I've learned that through personal experience. And I'm gonna tell you a story. So I have a really good friend named Al-Adin. And there's two things you need to know about Al-Adin. The first is that he is a Muslim's Muslim, okay? So he's a judge in Egypt. Uh, all of his friends know him as a sheikh or elder or teacher. And also, he's a hafid, which means he has memorized the entirety of the Quran front to back. Yeah, open mouth posture is appropriate because that's crazy. I mean, if you were to take the Bible, right, how many of you have memorized like mm, three or four verses? Right on. Okay, good, 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 good. Maybe we've got Psalm 23 down. Okay, maybe your confirmation verse. Maybe a couple of others, you know, John 3.16. Right, so maybe, how many of you have memorized an entire book of the Bible? Okay, there's a session later today about how to memorize portions of Scripture. Maybe you should go to that, but uh, I don't know. I'm horrible at it too, so I get it. So my friend Al-Adin, right, he's memorized the entirety of the Quran, which is really, really useful when you're studying Islamic studies, because when you're at a study session with this guy, you just go, hey, Al-Adin, what's that verse that says something about a throne and Allah being on the throne? And he's like, click, 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 and then he recites it back to me in this beautiful Arabic, and I'm like, okay, now translate it. Uh, and so he's really useful. The other thing you need to know about Al-Adin is that he's a big guy. Okay, and so one of the favorite things that I, I, I did with him when we were hanging out together in Florida was he'd go out to eat. And we'd eat here, we'd eat there, we'd try all the different places we could in Gainesville. His favorite spot was Ocean Buffet, which was an all-you-could-eat seafood buffet place. And the man would down like four plates. So he could eat, he could eat. I can't keep up. One time we went to a Chinese restaurant, and as we were sharing uh, our, our, our well, we got our meals, we usually shared our meals. We'd usually like, you know, pick off each other's plates. I don't know if you do that. You know, that way you get two meals for the price of one with your friends, right? Exactly. That's how to do it. And so we sat down, I ordered my food, and I ordered mushu pork, because why not, right? And I immediately then, as we always did, offered it to my friend, Ala Adin. I said, here, you need to try some of this mushu pork. And he very politely said, nah, I'm okay. I don't need to have any of your mushu pork. I was like, Al-Adin, please, come on, try some of my mushu pork. This might be the best mushu pork you're ever going to have in your entire life. You cannot pass up this mushu pork. And he said, Ken, really, I'm okay. I don't need any of your mushu pork. Then I looked at him and I said, hey, you're being rude, man. I'm offering you my mushu pork. You're taking none of it. This is our thing. What's the deal? And he looks back at me and says, Ken, I heard you're studying Islamic studies. I heard you're going to get a doctorate in this topic. I don't know if you know this but Muslims don't eat pork. And I died in my chair, because of course I knew this, but I had just blanked on it and then offered him the pork, and 
obvious he was offended. I was the rudest, most horrible person in the world. I'm pretty sure I was going to get a phone call from the university saying, we're revoking all of your degrees, we're kicking you out of the program, and you're never going to speak on the topic again. The rest of the meal was obviously extremely awkward for me and for him, and we just kind of ate it in silence. And the mushy pork, by the way, was actually really good. But um, he goes to the bathroom, I grab the check, pay for it immediately, he comes back, I'm ready to get out of there as soon as possible and just try to salvage the relationship and maybe some of my studies. And he says, Ken, I want to talk to you about earlier. And I'm like, oh, no, nah, here it comes. Like, it's bad enough they're going to kick me out of the program. Now I'm going to lose my friend. And he says, I want to thank you for what you did earlier. I said, thank me? For what? For offering me your mushu pork. And I said, no, Aladdin, that was a horrible, rude thing for me to do. Why would you thank me? He says, because here in the United States or among my friends or even back in Egypt, everyone just sees me as Aladdin, the Muslim. But in that moment, all you saw was Aladdin, your friend. And then he said, but don't ever do it again. <laughs> See, it doesn't take degrees to have a relationship with your Muslim neighbor. In fact, degrees might sometimes get in the way because we assume we know everything about that individual because they're Muslim, when in reality, we just need to get to know them as human beings. Now, a lot of that's going to be about their faith and their religion, just like with you. As I get to know you, I get to know you as Christian or as a follower of Jesus or as a Lutheran and, and what that means for your life and your practice and, and the decisions that you make. But there's also a lot about you that I shouldn't assume just because you're Lutheran, right? I shouldn't assume you're from Minnesota, Wisconsin, or the Dakotas. You may be from exotic Lutheran places like Florida or California, okay, which is where I've been living. Someone just shook their head like, no, there's no Lutherans in Florida. But the other reason we should build relationships is because we can break down walls of hostility that exist between Christians and Muslims. And I don't need to tell you that those hostilities exist. But part of following Jesus, according to the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in its second chapter, is to break down walls of hostility. Just as we were once strangers and foreigners and aliens to the promise and the community of God, and Jesus came to break down the walls of separation between us and God and us and the people of God. So too, we are called to break down walls of hostility and build relationships with our Muslim neighbors. So the goal is then to take us versus them and make it us for them, to take us apart from them and make it more about us with them less about us over them, as if we're superior to them, to us alongside of them, as their neighbors and their friends, less us in spite of them, and more us respecting them. The idea is to change the narrative, I'm friends with a Muslim even though I'm a Christian, to I am friends with a Muslim because I am a Christian. Now, I've done this topic at National Youth Gatherings before, and I love hearing your stories, because most of you come up to me afterwards, and you say, hey, Ken, I have Muslim friends. Thank you so very much for that presentation. And in fact, just uh, a couple of months ago, uh, after I'd already agreed to be here, someone from the last National Youth Gathering sent me an email uh, updating me about the relationship they had with their Muslim friend, which is really cool. And so I know y'all get this. A lot of you are already saying, yeah, yeah, this is fantastic, great stuff. I have Muslim friends. That's where this whole journey going into Islamic studies started with me, was I had friends in high school who were Muslim, Amir and Hassan, and we'd party, we'd hang out, we'd go surfing together, and then 9-11 happened. And I saw a bunch of stuff on the TV screen and online and, and in my church that made me go, huh? 
that doesn't match up with what I know about Amir and Hassan. How do I connect these two things? So I know you get it, but just like with me, a lot of stuff gets in the way of you being able to build a relationship with your Muslim neighbor. There are three primary sources, right? The media, there's a lot of stuff on TV and in newspapers, if any of you read those anymore, and blogs, right? There's also social media, a bunch of memes about Muslims that are positively full of hate. And then there's also stuff at your church. I've been to way too many Lutheran churches and other Christian churches where instead of a posture of openness and love and compassion toward our Muslim neighbors, there's hostility, there's fear, and there's even some of that hate that you find online. So I don't know what you've heard about Islam and Muslims, but today I'm going to try and dispel five popular myths that sometimes get in the way of the relationships that I'm calling you to build with your Muslim neighbors. These are the five myths, and don't worry about writing them all down really quickly, okay? Because uh, each one of them is going to pop up in turn, but these are the five myths. Islam is just one thing. Islam is pre-modern and needs a reformation. All Muslims are guilty. Fourth is, if you've read the Quran, then you know everything you need to know about Islam. And the fourth is, or fifth is, that there is a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. So the first. Islam is one thing. So when people think about Islam or they think about Muslims, I've found that the tendency is to think that Islam is all one big religion that acts all the same. That is as if all the Muslims were clicked into some hive mind, where if someone said, uh, go now and microwave some beans, they would all be like, okay, master, I will microwave beans. And that's not how it works. But it is how we tend to view Islam and Muslims. And we tend to think about Islam and Muslims in one of two ways, or in one of two lenses represented here in these images. The first is what I call the ISIS lens, the Islamic State in Syria, or the Islamic State in the Levant, or the Islamic State, or various other names that everyone calls them. But this is the stuff that was happening in Syria. And you've probably seen images like this online or in the media of black-clad individuals carrying a black flag and representing Islam. Ten years ago, maybe it would have been the Al-Qaeda or the 9-11 lens, even further back, it might have been something about Iran. You've probably heard about some of these things. And so people tend to think that Islam is just a violent religion, a hate-filled religion, seeking the domination of the world. And that's just not accurate. The vast majority of Muslims are not interested in taking over the world. They're not interested in condoning or committing violence. They don't think with one hive mind. Think about it this way. There are 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. 1.7 billion. I'd reckon there's about 125, 130 of us in this room right now. If you were to ask our opinion on something like, I don't know, baptism. You've heard of that, I'm sure, okay. What do we believe about baptism? What does it involve? Water and spirit, fantastic, okay? How do you do it? Real quiet, you don't wanna give a wrong answer. I get it, I get it, okay? Maybe somebody does a little splash and dash. You've ever seen that? I don't know, take the baby, just like hit him with a little bit of water, just enough to get the spirit in there, but not too much more, okay? Some people have got that really pretty shell that they, they dump over the baby's head and the baby goes, wah, okay? Um, have you ever seen full immersion? Does anybody ever have like a full immersion? Okay. Other traditions do this a lot more. One time I got to fully immerse a baby. Okay. Yeah. Scariest moment of my life. I don't have kids. Okay. I don't do babies. 
So I, I learned a trick, though, just in case you ever find yourself having to baptize a child in full immersion, okay? Is you blow in their face right before you dunk them in the water, and then you pray to Jesus, okay? That's, that's how you do it, okay? But then... There's other ways that people do They do the full dunk, you know, they, they kind of hold them down. Looks like sometimes the pastor's trying to drown the person rather than drown the sin. I don't know, okay? There's a bunch of different ways to do it. And I've been talking about in, baptizing infants and baptizing babies, but then there's a whole bunch of Christians that don't baptize babies. They actually think it's wrong to baptize babies. And then there's a whole group of people who says, well, if you're baptized as a baby and yet you come to faith later as an adult, well, then you need to get rebaptized. And we Lutherans say, no, 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 not to do that. So you're talking about one of the basic central tenets of Christianity. And there's about a thousand different ways to do it and a thousand different rules among all the different two billion Christians out there in the world. Well, the same thing is true in Islam. If there's one thing that's said about Islam, there's also about 1.7 billion ways that people think about it or do it or talk about it. The other lens that people tend to think of, and is just as problematic because of this diversity, is what I call the peace lens. So then people think, well, Islam is not all about violence. Islam is all about peace. Now, there's plenty of peace that is about the, uh, that's with, involved in the religion of Islam. Muslims are often all about peace and building peace with their neighbors no matter who they are. And that deserves being kind of emphasized against this violence lens that tends to dominate the news waves and our conversations about Islam if we don't know Muslims personally. But the truth is that there is also violence at work within Islam. There are Muslims who are violent because of their faith or their experiences or their perspective on the world. And so we can't say that Islam is all about violence or Islam is all about peace. The truth is there are contradictions and complexities and a certain amount of chaos that exists within Islam that we can't help to understand. So rather than thinking about Islam as one or the other or Islam as one big hive mind, I think I follow this guy named Talal Assad. His name won't be on the quiz later, so you're okay. But I think of it as a discursive tradition. Because as we try to come to terms with the vast diversity and contradictions that exist with, within the practice of Islam among 1.7 billion Muslims across the world, is that they do all agree that, we share, that they share certain concepts, so they share certain traditions or practices, like things like the Quran, right, or prayer, or the mosque, the Prophet Muhammad. These are all things that, that Muslims refer to across the globe. And yet their perspectives and their opinions and their practices in these places are according to those principles or people are vastly different. And so that's why this guy Assad calls it a discursive tradition. It's an ongoing conversation about what it means to be Islam, uh, Islamic or Muslim in light of these different people, in light of these different traditions and practices and beliefs. The second myth about Islam and Muslims is that Islam needs a reformation. But his name is Muhammad Abdu, and he is one of the most important Islamic or Muslim reformers that has existed over the last 1,400 years. In fact, he lived near the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. And so a lot of people say Islam needs a reformation. See, Christianity became a lot better once it had a reformation, that it was kind of pre-modern and medieval and ancient, and then it had a reformation, and Martin Luther saved everybody throughout the world, right? And then they say, well, Islam, <laughs> I love it. I, I don't get this reaction from, from other groups that aren't Lutheran, but like the Lutherans are like, of course, that's what Martin Luther did, right? <laughs> so some people say, well, Islam, and uh, they just need a reformer like Martin Luther. Well, the first thing is, Islam has had plenty of reformations. In fact, you could almost say 
that Islam has been an ongoing series of reformations. They've got these three different concepts of reform and revival and renewal that have been at work within Islam from the very beginning. So someone said, we know who this person is not. It came from this corner of the room, okay? And you said, that's not Muhammad. So Muhammad, his whole story is that in the seventh century in what is now called Saudi Arabia, he was a part of the city of Mecca that was a major trade city there. And the way they built relationships with other tribes or other communities was not through marriage. You probably have read in the history books that any time any like, political entities in Europe wanted to like, connect, what did they do? They married their sons and daughters off, okay? In, in Saudi Arabia during those times, it was not called Saudi Arabia back then, but in what is now called Saudi Arabia, they would accept different people's gods. And so if they built a new trade or political relationship with another tribe or community, they would say, hey, what is your god or deity? We'll add it to our central shrine, which was a black box in the middle of the city. Have any of you ever seen a picture of a black box in Mecca? Right? Okay, it's a pretty popular image that pops out there on the internet. This is called the Kaaba. And that existed back in the seventh century. And so anytime anybody came to the city to do any type of business, they'd circle around the Kaaba seven times. And in that way, pay respect to all the different deities and idols and saints and spirits that were inside the box. And Muhammad comes along and tries to reform this, feeling that instead of worshiping all these different deities and gods and spirits and things, they were called instead to worship the one God he called Allah which was a name that they had used before for a high god, but he said that's actually the only god that exists. And eventually, through a bunch of conflict and, and, and a bunch of uh, persecution of, of the Muslim community and, and, and finally being able to wrest power away from the tribe that was in control during those times, Muhammad was able to go into the Kaaba and remove all the different deities and gods and spirits that were represented in that black box and left nothing inside of it. He destroyed all of them, and then he didn't destroy two. Can you guess which two he didn't destroy? Mary, okay? So Jesus and Mary were removed from the Kaaba and set safely aside. They were still removed, not to be worshipped as deities. Muslims don't believe Jesus is God. They just believe he was a really cool prophet, second only to Muhammad. True story. Okay, so from then all the way up until now, Islam has gone through a continual series of reformations, including now they've got multiple Muslim reformers at work in the world doing all types of work, advocating for more women's rights, trying to establish, uh, you know, gay-friendly mosques in different places like South Africa or in Germany. And there's a bunch of other movements that are all trying to emphasize certain things within Islam to try and uh, make it more 21st century friendly or to try and make it more 7th century friendly, right? Trying to go back to the sources. You often hear in our churches sometimes, does your pastor ever get out the book of Acts, right? And then say, we, mean, we need to be more like the church in the book of Acts, okay? Muslims try to do the same thing. They try to collapse history and go back to the 7th century. And so all these different communities are trying to reform Islam. And what we see is that reformations can often be ugly things. Quick history lesson. What happened after the Reformation? Everything wasn't just all right. There was the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation, right? And then there was the Seven Years' War, the Thirty Years' War. There was just a lot of war, okay? There was a lot of blood and violence and death because when people disagree about religion, guess what happens? People die. And that's not less and less true. In our day, it's actually more and more true. And so what we've been witnessing on our TV or on our social media, in the news, wherever you might find it, is somewhat of a contest between different Muslims trying to reform Islam in different directions. The number one group of people that are victims of the violence that Muslims perpetrate 
are other Muslims. 70% of the victims of violence committed by Muslims are against other Muslims. And that's only a very small minority of Muslims who commit that violence, about 2 to 3% worldwide. It's enough to cause bloodshed and pain and hurt, right? But it is not a vast majority. But right now, what we're kind of witnessing is after Muhammad Abdu came in the 19th century, is kind of a, a contest over who gets to speak for Islam in the 21st century. And guess what? No one's going to win in particular. It's going to continue going on, just like in Christianity. Now, I kind of reference this in terms of that 2 to 3% of Muslims who commit violence. But one thing that people tend to think is that all Muslims are guilty, right? either because they commit the violence or they condone the violence. Either they, they do the, the violent things or they say the violent things are okay or they represent Islam. Now this view not only contradicts that first myth, right, that first myth that Islam is one thing. No, can't be. 1.7 billion Muslims, there's tons of diversity within the house of Islam. But it also has three central problems. A guy named Todd Green wrote a book called Presumed Guilty. And he says that the three main issues with presuming that all Muslims are guilty, is that first, the question wrongly assumes that Islam is the driving force behind terrorism. So if you see terrorism, if you see those black hooded guys with black banners in the desert, right, you assume they're there because they are Muslim. Well, interesting story. Two guys from San Diego, California, were flying over to Turkey where they were gonna cross the border into Syria and join the Islamic State in Syria to fight for the, the caliphate of Islam in the Middle East, right? And to try to dominate the world for Islam. They were caught at Dulles International Airport near Washington, DC. They found two books, the exact same book, in each of the guy's bags. Can you guess what book it was? The Bible, everyone guesses that, and it's always wrong, okay? Would be cool, but not the Bible, can you guess? This is the part where you respond. See, that's, this is like a give and take thing right here, okay? So can you guess which book it was? Just guess. The Quran. No, it wasn't, okay? The what, sorry? The terrorist handbook? Uh, no. Uh, buy it off the internet? They did buy this book off the internet, ordered by it through Amazon, delivered Prime, two days free shipping, okay? Uh, I'm not sponsored, I should say that. Um, I just signed up for Prime for free, and I'm enjoying it for a few seconds, okay? It was actually a book that you may have seen before back in these ancient institutions called Barnes and Noble. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, okay? Um, but it would be yellow up here, yellow up here, and then there'd be this like black chalkboard-like thing, and then white lettering that would say, Islam for dummies. Exactly right, you win! Gold star, okay. But they had this book, Islam for dummies, in each of their bags, and they were asked about it. They said this, they said, well, we felt marginalized and we, we felt like no one listened to us and we didn't have work and we were bored and we were on the internet and we found purpose and meaning and drive from the Islamic State. We thought we could join a community and be loved and be valued by them and we could fight against the oppression that we felt in our daily lives. But we realized that we didn't know much about Islam. And we didn't really go to the mosque. We never paid attention to what our imam or our leader was saying. And we thought maybe we should learn something before we get over there and, and get embarrassed. And then, and then the interrogator probably asked, well, then why did you put the book in your checked bags? Uh, but anyways, they were like, well, you sleep on the flight. You watch a movie and then you go to bed, okay? But anyways, I made all that up. But the part that was true is that these people said they did not understand Islam, and yet they were going to fight with their, their lives to defend it. What people have found in terms of the motivations of terrorists across the world, whether that be in Syria or in Europe or in Africa or in Asia or wherever it might be, 
is that yes, religion plays a part, but usually it has more to do with politics or not having a job or just being bored or not having enough friends that drives these individuals to commit acts of terror. The second problem with presuming all Muslims are guilty is that it ignores the many ways that Muslims already condemn terrorism. A lot of people always ask me, well, Ken, if they were against terrorism, why don't they say it? And I say, the problem isn't that they're not saying it. The problem is that we're not hearing it. The majority of my friends these days on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are Muslim, okay? Uh, the algorithms assume I'm Muslim, I think, because all of the stuff I get on my feed are from other Muslims. And that's because my research has been with Muslims over the last several years. I spent more time in mosques than in my local church because of the job that I had to do research with Muslims. I go to their homes, I'd hang out with them at cafes and in clubs and go to the beach with them and all of that. They became my friends. Or go get mushu pork, right? So anytime there's an act of terror, an act of violence perpetrated by a Muslim or a non-Muslim, every single time my Facebook feed and my Instagram feed and my Twitter feed get lit up with Muslims expressing anger over this violence or sadness over this violence or fear that they might in turn face violence because of what is happening in the news or being spread around the internet. In addition, every single major Muslim organization, anytime there's an act of violence that we call terror, they put out an official press release or comment that says, we do not condone, in fact, we condemn these acts of terror. The problem is, we're not friends with Muslims online, or we're not paying attention to what these organizations say. Instead, we're listening to a narrative that has pinned Muslims as violent people and assume that they're all guilty and that they never condemn violence when they always, always do. The third problem with this narrative is that it ignores the way in which the West is violent. Now, later on, I'm going to kind of question the fact that we say the West and Islam is as, as if they're two separate things. But we also forget the fact that we do violent stuff. Every once in a while I get angry and I throw something, or I hit the wall, right? We all have violence at work in our daily lives, and that's true of our nation as well. I have many Muslim friends who've lost loved ones through violence perpetrated by our military. And that's not to say that our military is all bad. I'm not trying to say that, right? But to be at war is to commit violence. It's part of what war is. And many Muslims throughout the world in Muslim-majority countries in places like Iraq or Syria, Afghanistan, and other places, they have faced violence. They have faced terror in their daily lives and lost loved ones. And for some of them, that just makes them extremely sad and extremely hurt. Others, it makes them extremely angry, and they want to get back. Just like many of us sometimes get very angry and want to get back when there are planes driven into towers, or there are buses driven into Christmas markets, or there are gunshots fired at a movie theater or at a stadium or wherever it might be. Violence isn't a Muslim problem, or an American problem, or a Christian problem. It's a human sin problem, right? So I'm not trying to say all Muslims are innocent. It's not true. Just like not all of you are guilty. But we're all bearing the burden of violence in our world. The problem is that often what we see in the news, again, or on social media, or even at our churches, tells us that all Muslims are guilty, all Muslims are violent, it is all their fault, okay? 
And we don't know enough Muslims. So what it says here, maybe it's too small for some of you in the back. So it says, the number of Americans who know a Muslim directly corresponds to colder feelings about Islam and Muslims as a whole. So only about 38% of Americans say they personally know a Muslim individual. The same amount of people say they have warm feelings toward Muslims. It corresponds almost directly, okay? But then when asked about how do they get information about Muslims, 80%, four out of every five people say it is from the news media that they get their information, okay? And a lot of you might say, well, that's the problem. The media, they're always the problem, okay? So the media, again, does not think with a hive mind, okay? They don't all sit there and go, we are supposed to write negative things about Muslims, okay? And I say that because I'm a member of the media. I write for newspapers and magazines. I help lead an organization that's all about religion news and writing about it. And fair enough, sometimes we do a really bad job writing about religion. We get things wrong. We, we put things out in the news that don't look good, that sound bad. But guess what? It makes us money. <laughs> because guess what y'all read? Y'all read the violent stuff. That's what you're into, okay? There's a cliche line in, in journalism that says, if it bleeds, it leads, okay? That's because if you had two stories to choose from, which one would you choose? Muslims found in mosque, found plotting terror attack. There's your one headline. Muslims found in mosque, praying there. Which one do you read? You always read this one, right? Because that one's boring. Of course Muslims are praying in a mosque. Yawn. It's like saying Christians go to church, sing songs that are slightly out of tune. Okay, that always happens, okay? But if you were to say Christians go to church, plan burning down synagogue, you'd be like, what's going on there, right? And so we always read the stories that are about violence. And there's never going to be stories about Muslims going to a mosque and praying there. You're just not going to click on it, people aren't going to read it, journalists aren't going to get paid, and they're not going to have jobs anymore. And so we can't just rely on the news. Again, we've got to go get to know Muslims and how they pray or how they eat and how they live their lives, not just on what's in bloody headlines, but beyond them. Todd Green finished his book by saying we should stop asking Muslims to condemn terrorism under the assumption that they are guilty of harboring terrorist sympathies or promoting violence until they prove otherwise. And again, what we've got to see is that in the relationships we can build with our Muslim neighbors, we will find hospitality and friendship from them rather than hostility and ferocity. Myth number four, reading the Quran and knowing Islam. How many of you have read anything from the Quran? Raise your hand. Fantastic, good for you, okay? I hope that if you haven't had the opportunity to do so, you might do so as well. Uh, in, in your community or as, as part of your church group to see what's said in the Quran. Now, if you've read the Quran, there's some stuff in there that you may or may not like, okay? What are some things that you read from the Quran that, that made you uncomfortable or maybe you had questions about? Anybody? Kill the infidel wherever you find them. If you find them behind a tree or under a rock, kill them there. Yep. Know that one? Anything else? Heaven is wine and women. Man, you should be up here speaking. That was nice. Like, the way you put that together. Man, Ithaca, New York, representing, okay? So, some others in there about being able to beat your wife, okay? Chapter 4, verse 34. Or, yeah, anything about killing infidels. Or how should you treat Jews and Christians who are known as people of the book? 
all of these things are people are things that people bring to me every once in a while. They say, Ken, how can you read about this in the Quran and say that Muslims are not all violent? Or how can you say that Islam is not a religion of violence or, or a religion that is unjust towards women or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? These things are in the Quran. There's no way around that. But there's a few things we need to think about when we read the Quran and we run into difficult verses like that. First, texts by themselves are silent. I know that all of you read books in high school, or let me rephrase that. You are meant to read books in high school, okay? I've been there where you like read the cliff notes or the spark notes or just Google search it and hope Wikipedia is accurate, okay? I get it. I do it too. Um, but you have books that are written by authors who are long dead, right? And then your teacher always asks that really funny question, like, what was Shakespeare thinking when he wrote this? Like, we could knock on Shakespeare's coffin, like, that was supposed to be louder. Let me just do, there we go, now you're awake. Okay, so, uh, Mr. Shakespeare, what did you think when you were writing such and such about the Tempest or whatever, okay, right? So we ask him this, right? No, he's dead, we can't ask him this, right? We have to interpret texts. We have to do the work of explaining what that text means today. And we may or may not get what Shakespeare originally meant. Now, there are experts there that are there to help us understand what Shakespeare meant, to explain the context of Shakespeare, to explain uh, what this reference may, may have meant, or just to translate these, thys, those, and whatevers, okay, uh, into modern English. And so the same is true of the Quran. Again, none of this is gonna be on the quiz. But I throw this up here to say, this is what goes into interpreting the Quran. In particular, there are four important steps. The first is reading the Quran and what it says. But guess what? Have you ever read the book of Leviticus and wondered, what does that have to do with my life? There's a lot of stuff in there about fire and guts and goats and altars and acacia wood and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen, I do none of that in my church and I don't know if I'm supposed to, okay? None of you brought a goat to the National Youth Gathering to sacrifice upon the altar on Sunday, did you? If, if you did, I would need to report you, okay? But again, we, we don't do that stuff. And what we have to do is say, well then how do we apply it to today? Muslims have to do the same thing with the Quran because it was written in the seventh century and the majority of Muslims know that the seventh century is not the same as the 21st. And so they rely on other things. The first thing they turn to is what is known as the Sunnah, or the life of the Prophet Muhammad, whom they call the living Quran. If you want to understand how to live the Quran, then you need to look at the person who lived it best, the Prophet Muhammad. And then they go, well, how do we know what the Prophet Muhammad did? They use something called the Hadith, which are the written records of the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Beyond that, they rely on reasoning, okay, their logic, and the community of consensus. So they, they turn to other teachers to say, okay, where it says kill the infidels wherever you find them. Behind the tree, under the rocks, kill them there. Well, how do we apply that to today? They also ask questions like, can I use a Sonicare? How many of you use a Sonicare at home? Okay, it's a nice toothbrush, right? I bet you your dentist likes you, okay? Those of you who don't use a Sonicare, consider buying one. I am sponsored by them, so just kidding. But yeah, a Sonicare, right? This fantastic electronic toothbrush that's able to get in there and get all the, the, the dirt and gunk and get under your gums. And I don't know, I've watched the commercials, it looks cool, okay? So they use a the Sonicare. Muslims have asked, can I use a Sonicare? Why would they ask that? Because if they look at the life of the prophet, he used something called a miswak, which was a, basically a branch of a tree to clean his teeth. 
okay? Because they didn't have Sonicares in the seventh century. I don't know if you knew that, okay? But he used that, and at the time, it was a helpful way to clean your teeth. It actually works quite well. Some people still use a miswalk today to clean their teeth, okay? And it's not as hard as you think it's going to be with the branch. It's actually quite soft. But anyways, Muslims say, can I use a Sonicare instead of a miswalk? The Prophet Muhammad uses a miswalk, but can I use a Sonicare? Because I have so many cavities, and I am losing all types of money by trying to get them filled in and crowns and all that other stuff. And so a group of teachers looks at the Quran. There's nothing in there about a Sonicare, okay? To the example of the Prophet Muhammad, he uses a miswalk, uh, but does that mean he, you absolutely can't use a Sonicare? He doesn't say, don't use anything but a miswalk. He just encourages you to use the branch of a tree. Well, then what do we think, and, and what does the community think about this? And in that whole series of things, a group of Muslim leaders and teachers came to the conclusion that you can use a Sonicare and remain a faithful Muslim. Another group of Muslim leaders came to the conclusion that no, you cannot use a Sonicare. You should use the miswalk as the Prophet Muhammad did. Both groups proclaimed what is called a fatwa, and that's a legal opinion on a particular question that Muslims have asked about how to live the Quran today. Now, you do not have to remember all that process, but you can now see what goes into trying to interpret the Quran. So if you read the Quran on your own, good for you, but what you should do is take that verse that you're unsure about, and you should ask Muslims their opinion about it. You should ask a leader at a local mosque or your Muslim friends and say, hey, I read this in the Quran. What do you think? And then trust Muslims to respond to you. Some of them might go, you know, I've never read that verse. <laughs> it's a true story. Others might say, well, you know, you might have heard a lot of things about that, but let me tell you, I don't think I should be killing anybody. And instead, maybe where it says kill the infidels wherever you find them, that's more about me combating the temptations and the sin in my life, okay? Or a word like jihad, people are gonna interpret that as being an external war against your enemies in the West. Well, they say, no, that's not really what we emphasize. We instead emphasize the greater jihad, the struggle within our daily lives. And we should take Muslims at their word on how they're interpreting these verses and applying them to their lives. The other thing is this. I've often found that most Muslims don't consult their imam, don't consult teachers, don't even read the Quran, right? They instead ask Sheikh Google Ibn Yahoo. They get on Google and ask a question like, can I use a Sonicare? Or what does jihad mean? or why are Christians so interested in the Quran, okay? They go to Google, just like we all do, and then they read a Wikipedia article on it, okay? So there's lots of different ways that Muslims go about understanding and applying their faith. And so we can't just read the Quran and think we understand what it means or what the conclusions are that Muslims make about it. Another interesting note about the Quran is that what we believe about Jesus, Jesus in Christianity is what Muslims think about the Quran in Islam. We think that Jesus is the physical embodiment of God, the incarnation of God on earth, that he is really present here in Jesus, right? And continues to be present with us in baptism and in communion and in the word. Well, Muslims look at the Quran and they believe that that is the only way that Allah has represented himself to earth. And so they treat it with great respect and great honor and is it as if it is the living, breathing presence of Allah in their midst. And it's been interpreted and applied in many ways. And one of my favorite ways that it's been applied is through something called the American Quran, okay? So earlier, I was talking to the folks from Sheboygan about how they surf on blocks of ice on the lake during the winter, okay? In California, they do it with surfboards in the ocean. So lame, okay? Much cooler to do it on the ice blocks, as we agreed. But here, this individual made a page of every, uh, every uh, page of the Quran and, and represented it in art. 
And here, the, the two, the last two chapters of the Quran, uh, chapter 113, or uh, sorry, um, chapter 115 and 116, are daybreak and humankind, or mankind. And the way he represented it here was people getting ready to go surf or to walk along the beach or to enjoy the sunrise on the California coast in a town called Malibu. That's how he applied the Quran to his daily life. There are tons of different ways that Muslims apply it, and we should listen to them to see how they do. The last myth, that there is a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West or Christianity and Muslims. In a lot of ways, there is a clash, right? But it's really hard to say that there is anything such as the Muslim world. If I were to ask you where the Muslim world is, where would you say it is? The Middle East, yeah. I, I don't think that's a, a wrong assumption, right? Most people think Muslim world counts as the Middle East and North Africa, right? If I'm going to a place like Turkey or Egypt or Libya or Syria or Jordan or Saudi Arabia, you'd think I'm going to the Muslim world. But the Muslim world is a diverse thing. These are images from across the world, from Africa to Jordan to Spain to Pakistan to Malaysia to Japan, to Indonesia, to Iran. Now, when we think of the Muslim world, again, we think of the Middle East and North Africa, those dark green spots on the map, right? And granted, in those countries, the majority of the population is Muslim. Some of them 99%, 94%, okay? But do you know where the most populous Muslim nations are? The most Muslims live anywhere in the world? Can anybody guess the number one nation? It's, people know this now, yeah. Indonesia, exactly right. Gold star for you, sir. No prize at the end, but you get my gratitude, okay? So, Indonesia is exactly right. But the top five nations with populations of Muslims are Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nigeria. All of them outside of the Middle East and North Africa area represented there. Now, the next five are Egypt, Iran, Turkey, Algeria, and Morocco. So there is somewhat of a truth to saying that the Middle East and North Africa is kind of a central hub or, or, or node in the network of Muslims across the world. But this map helps us realize just how different the Muslim world actually is. First of all, it's all over the world, right? So the big circle over here is Asia Pacific, which includes Indonesia, Malaysia, places in Singapore, down into Australia, et cetera. And then you've got the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa that have large numbers. But you also have Europe and North America and Latin America and the Caribbean which is where I do the majority of my work, right? And this number is actually pretty low. It's probably closer to two million, so twice as much there. But the truth is that only one out of every five Muslims in the world lives in the Middle East and North Africa. Full 80% of them live elsewhere, including increasingly here in the United States and North America. So I've got some maps to kind of take a look at that as well. So this first map. These colors represent the second largest religion in any one of these states. So go find your state somewhere in there, right? And then let's guess the colors. So the yellowish color, what do, we, what do we guess? That that's the second largest religion in that state. First largest religion in all 50 US states, Christianity. Okay, we'll just get that out of the way. Second largest in the West, except for Arizona. Buddhism, okay, those of you in the front can actually read the slide, so you, you're cheating, okay? Uh, how about the red in Arizona? Hindu traditions, okay, Hindu traditions, okay, so Hinduism. How about the purple up in the northeast and here in Minnesota, et cetera, Tennessee, Missouri? Jewish, exactly right. And how about that teal that's darker teal? How about, well, the lighter teal in South Carolina? 
Can you guess that? Baha'i. But can you guess the, 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 the teal or the turquoise one? That's Islam. Is your state up there? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you are, okay? Islam and Muslims have been part of the United States for a long time, and they have a, a very large history here, but they also have a very distinct presence today. The darker the state gets, the more mosques there are there. So in California, or Texas, or Florida, or Illinois, or New York, or Michigan should be darker, or Minnesota should be darker. This map is a little old now. This is from 2011. Or if you look at this map, where you look at the estimated number of Muslim followers in these different areas around a lot of US cities, but also in places like Iowa. So I got to drive across the United States this summer, and I went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Anybody from Cedar Rapids or even know where that is? Okay, fantastic. Do you know why I went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa on my cross-country trek? Because the oldest existing purpose-built mosque in the United States is there in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's in this little community, and it looks like it's an Iowa home, except it's got like a tower up the top of it, okay? So Muslims exist in all these different places. And if you overlay that with a map of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there's a little bit of difference. But we also live in a lot of the same places. Islam and Muslims have also been part of the history of the United States for a long time. In 1492, Columbus sailed the... Fantastic, you're still awake, I'm glad. Okay, so, also on his ships, on one of the Nina Pinta or Santa Maria, were two Muslim slaves from Morocco that he brought along in order to translate with the people that he was going to encounter. Because if you remember, Columbus thought he was going to India, so he brought along people who he thought might be able to communicate with the Indians. He still thought when they arrived here in the Americas and the Caribbean that they could translate, right? But lo and behold, most of the people in the Caribbean did not speak Arabic. Okay, but they brought them. Also, this is the first landing in Florida of this guy uh, and his whole group of about 400 to 500 explorers who went through Florida and the south and down into Mexico and then up into New Mexico. And along with him was a guy named Estabanico. Estabanico was a Muslim slave. Out of the 400 to 500 people who started this expedition, the first grand exploration of what is now the United States by Europeans, only four people survived, one of them being Estabanico, the Muslim slave. And it's from his account and the account of some of the three other Spaniards that were with him that we start to understand the very early indigenous history and encounter between Europe and the Americas. Also, at least one out of every five slaves brought over to North and South America was Muslim. Today, Muslims come in large numbers, immigrating or escaping violence to come to the United States to enjoy its liberty and its freedom and its economic opportunity. There are also many converts who have left an indelible mark on our culture, both in the past and today. These are three very prominent Muslims that you might know, Muhammad Ali and, and Malcolm X, and one of our very recent Olympic athletes. And this is my Puerto Rican Muslim friend from up in Yonkers, New York. When I got to hang out with him for an entire day, do you know what he showed me and taught me? He had 12 hours with me. Guess what we talked about? We didn't talk about Islam very much. We talked about Yonkers and how much he loves Yonkers. He showed me the river. He showed me his favorite restaurants. He showed me his favorite murals. He took me to this really boring museum that was all about the history of Yonkers, and I couldn't tell you a thing about it anymore. But I went there to talk to him about what it meant to be Muslim in the United States today, and what he wanted to show me was his hometown. 
because he loves it and he grew up there and he says it is central to who he is and how he acts in the world today. The assignment for you after this, right, is to not look at your encounter with Muslims or with the religion of Islam as a clash, but more as an opportunity for compassion, to get to know Muslims again as human beings who love Yonkers, who go out to Chinese food, or interpret the Quran in about a thousand different ways. There's a few ways you can do this, and this is where we're gonna to close today. You can dine, dialogue, discern, or do together. So the first thing is, dine together. Use an opportunity to connect with your Muslim neighbors wherever you are, and invite them over for a meal. If you do Advent or Lenten meals, invite them over. Say, come on over, we're gonna have a meal here together. Or, at your mosque, they might invite you over for a Ramadan uh, feast, right? So during the month of Ramadan, they fast from sunrise to sunset, and then at the, the nighttime, right at sunset, they have something called an iftar, which means breakfast, and they break the fast. Most mosques have an open invitation to people in the community to come and join them for an iftar. So maybe youth group leaders, or you could talk to your leaders about going over for an iftar and sharing a meal with them. Or maybe use that as an opportunity to have a dialogue together. Invite a local Muslim over to your church or have your pastor or leader go over to a local mosque and have a dialogue about what it means to be Muslim and Christian in the world today and to live next to each other as neighbors. Or perhaps you can discern together to think about the ways that you might correct some of the misperceptions or dispel some of the myths that are out there about Islam, Muslims, or Christian-Muslim relations. The last thing you can do is do something together. How many of you have ever done a Habitat for Humanity build? Yeah, did you know you can do interfaith Habitat for Humanity builds? You can work with Baha'is or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or atheists or Jews or other Christians like Presbyterians, okay? <laughs> you can do that work with them and do something together. And along the way, as you're like hitting each other's thumbs with hammers or maybe shooting a nail gun at somebody, then you're gonna get to know them really well as you go to the emergency room together. But the thing is, whatever you do, whether you dine, or whether you dialogue, whether you discern, or whether you do together, get to know them, interact with them, and become friends with them. Because if there's one thing we need to know, it's not what the Quran says about this, or whether or not Muslims are all violent, it's instead, how can we build peace with our neighbors, no matter who they are? Christ gives us the injunction to love thy neighbor. That includes anyone and everyone, including your Muslim neighbor.